Welcome, weirdos. Before I dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know of a big change we have made here at One Weird Chick. One Weird Chick has partnered with Patreon to offer superfans exclusive content. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become an official creeper, which gives you ad-free access to all episodes. Can't get enough of One Weird Chick fast enough? Then become an official stranger for $2 a month. In addition to ad-free content, you'll also get episodes of One Weird Chick earlier than regular listeners. But for the ultimate One Weird Chick fan, for just $3 a month, you can join the ranks of the weirdos. Weirdos receive ad-free content, early access to episodes, and an exclusive One Weird Chick button, all in addition to being able to request content for upcoming episodes. To sign up for all of your One Weird Chick must-haves, visit patreon.com slash onewearedchick. Now, on to the show. Welcome, weirdos. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and this is One Weird Chick. American aviator Charles Lindbergh rose to fame when he became the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. While this feat made him a household name, it was the bizarre kidnapping and murder of his son and the strange circumstances around it that made him infamous. Born February 4th, 1902, to Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr. and Evangeline Lodge Land, Charles Lindbergh grew up on a farm near Little Falls, Minnesota. According to the website, charleslindbergh.com, quote, In childhood, Lindbergh showed exceptional mechanical ability. At the age of 18, he entered the University of Wisconsin to study engineering. However, Lindbergh was more interested in the exciting young field of aviation than he was in school. After two years, he left school to become a barnstormer a pilot who performed daredevil stunts at fairs." End quote. In 1924, Lindbergh enrolled in the U.S. Army Air Service, where he continued his aviator training. He was later hired to deliver mail by air between St. Louis and Chicago. In 1919, hotel owner Raymond Ortiz offered a cash prize of $25,000 to the first aviator to fly non-stop from New York to Paris. Many tried and failed, some attempts even resulting in death. By 1927, it seemed that the prize would never be won. Working in collaboration, with the Ryan Aero Natural Company of San Diego, the team manufactured the Spirit of St. Louis, a plane of Lindbergh's own design. On May 10th, 1927, Lindbergh flew from San Diego to New York City 
stopping only in St. Louis along the way. The flight took approximately 20 hours and 21 minutes to complete and set a never-before-heard-of record in aviation flight time. On May 21, 1927, Lindbergh made headlines when he became the first person to successfully fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. He departed New York at 7.52 a.m. on May 20th and landed at the Le Bourget Field Airport near Paris on May 21st at 10.21 p.m. He was welcomed by thousands of cheering people who quite literally hoisted him onto their shoulders and paraded him around. The flight took approximately 33 and a half hours, in which Lindbergh flew more than 3,600 miles, 5,790 kilometers. After the award-winning flight, Lindbergh embarked on a national tour. While in Mexico, he met a woman by the name of Anne Spencer Marrow. Marrow was the daughter of an American ambassador stationed in Mexico at the time. The two fell in love, and in 1929, they married. They traveled the world together, and Lindbergh even taught Marrow how to fly. Marrow herself soon rose to critical acclaim for her work as a writer. The Lindbergh settled down in East Amwell, New Jersey in 1931, where they built a home they named Highfields. According to the National Register of Historic Places, quote, it was in a secluded spot of the Sourland Mountain so as to escape the spotlight brought on by their celebrity status. The Sourland Mountain location, while secluded, offered easy access by air and automobile to the Lindbergh's offices in New York City and to the laboratories of nearby Princeton University, to which they had been granted access." End quote. On June 22, 1930, Lindbergh and Marrow welcomed the arrival of their first child, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Coincidentally, Charles Jr. also arrived on Marrow's birthday, which gave the family extra cause for celebration. Given the public's obsession with his parents, Charles Jr. was immediately thrust into the public eye. According to the website charleslindbergh.com, within an hour after the child was born, messages began to pour into the home from everywhere, from people in all walks of life, rich and poor alike. Everybody was interested in the birth of the son of the most famous man in modern history. Strangers came in long motor processions to the gate of the estate to offer their congratulations. End quote. Sadly, the safe and idyllic life the Lindberghs had created would soon be shattered. On March 1st, 1932, Nurse Betty Gow put Charles Jr. to bed in his nursery on the second floor of the Lindbergh family home. Charlie, as he had come to be known, was recovering from a cold. Before putting him down at 8pm, Gao rubbed medication on his chest. 
While his son was being put to bed, Lindbergh was on his way to an appearance at New York University. At the last minute, he decided not to attend and called home to tell them of the change in plans. It is important to note that Lindbergh lived for the moments in which he was celebrated and adored by the public. It was very unusual for him not to attend, but more so for him not to advise them that he wasn't attending, which is exactly what happened. During a phone conversation prior to his drive home, he advised his wife not to let anyone into the nursery between the hours of 8pm and 10pm. He explained that he wanted to make sure his son was not interrupted so he could fully recover from his cold. Lindbergh arrived home shortly after at approximately 8.25pm. Shortly after 10pm, Gal returned to the nursery to check on Charlie. She found the nursery window open and went to shut it, fearful that the sleeping baby would catch a chill. She was startled when she found Charles's crib empty. Gal ran downstairs to inform Lindbergh and Marrow of Charlie's disappearance. At the time, the Lindberghs were sitting in the library, which was directly below Charlie's nursery. Lindbergh and Marrow followed Gal back to Charlie's nursery, where Lindbergh himself exclaimed, quote, Anne, they've stolen our baby. End quote. New Jersey State Police were called and quickly arrived at the scene. Led by Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf Sr., the unit discovered muddy footprints leading to and from the woods that surrounded the property. Traces of mud were also found on the floor of the nursery, as well as under the nursery window. A handmade wooden ladder was left outside the window to Charlie's nursery. The ladder appeared handmade and was so badly assembled that investigators toyed with the idea that more than one person might have been involved in the crime, one to hold the ladder while the other climbed it. The ladder was made from two sections, one of which was broken during the kidnapping. This would later be referred to as Rail Number 16, but that will come into play in due course. It was during this investigation that the first of a series of ransom notes were found. Discovered on an open windowsill, it read, quote, Dear Sir, have $5,000 ready, $2,500 in $20 bills, $1,500 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you from making any public or for notify the police the child is in gut care. Indication for all letters, our signature and three holes, end quote. The ransom note was signed with two overlapping blue circles and a red circle in the center. With its grammatical inconsistencies and format in which the dollar symbol appeared after the amount of money, investigators were quick to believe the kidnapper 
was not a native English speaker. According to the website medium.com, quote, a currency symbol following a dollar amount is common in certain European countries, such as France, the Scandinavian countries, and Germany. The word gut, spelt G-U-T, or gut, spelt G-U-T-E, translates to good in German. End quote. With the eyes of the world upon his family, Lindbergh immediately took control of the investigation. He refused to allow investigators to speak to the majority of his household staff and even turned down additional help from the FBI. As mentioned, Charlie was recovering from a cold when he was kidnapped. Marrow took to the newspapers where she pleaded with Charlie's kidnappers to take care of him. She detailed his condition and even provided instructions for a special diet which he required to stay healthy. With what felt like the entire world searching, baby Charlie was nowhere to be found. The footprints at the scene proved useless and there were no fingerprints found at the scene or on the ransom note. Without warning, another ransom letter was received. It detailed a ransom of $70,000, a $20,000 increase from the kidnapper's initial request of $50,000. The second ransom note was again written with the same grammatical errors and broken English. Most startling, the note also acknowledged having read Marrow's instructions for Charlie's diet in the newspaper and even stated that they were following it. Two days later, a third ransom note was received. This time, the letter was sent to Henry Breckenridge, Lindbergh's attorney. In the letter, the kidnapper requested a middle person between themselves and the Lindberghs. Enter 72-year-old retired school teacher, Dr. John Condon. Condon resided in the Bronx, New York, and was previously unknown to the Lindbergh family. He, like the rest of the world, had followed Lindbergh's career and wanted to help. Condon was, quote, a self-styled civic advocate who frequently penned letters to the editor of the local newspaper, the Bronx Home News, end quote. When Condon learnt of Charlie's kidnapping and the ransom notes that followed, he published an open letter in a local newspaper in which he offered to be the go-between person the kidnappers had demanded. In addition, Condon also offered an additional $1,000 of his own savings for the return of Charlie. The Lindberghs agreed to Condon's involvement and hoped that their baby boy would soon be returned. Working collaboratively, the IRS and FBI arranged the $70,000 ransom in gold certificates. A gold certificate is a certificate of ownership that gold owners hold instead of storing the physical gold itself. 
unbeknownst to Condon or the kidnappers. The IRS and FBI recorded the certificate numbers. If the certificates were used, the authorities would theoretically be able to track its spender. Once safely delivered by the FBI to his residence, Condon penned another letter advising the kidnappers that he was ready to meet with them on behalf of the Lindberghs. Lindbergh himself instructed Condon not to hand over the money until he was able to confirm that baby Charlie was still alive. On March 12th, taxi driver Joseph Perone arrived at Condon's apartment in the Bronx with a letter in hand. The letter instructed Condon to walk to a vacant hot dog stand close by, where he was instructed to look for another note hidden underneath a rock. The note that he discovered, the sixth in the series, stated, quote, Cross the street and follow the fence from the cemetery direction to 233rd Street. I will meet you. End quote. The directions led Condon to Woodlawn Cemetery, where he noticed a man waving a handkerchief. According to the website medium.com, quote, The man called himself John and would come to be known as Cemetery John. He spoke with a distinct German accent and asked, Did you get the money? Dr. Condon told him he couldn't bring the money until he saw evidence that the baby was alive. End quote. Fearing the police were on his trail, Cemetery John allegedly attempted to flee the scene when he heard rustling leaves, claiming that it was, quote unquote, too dangerous. Acting quickly, Condon followed the stranger across the street and detained him. As per Lindbergh's instructions, there were no police present during the ransom drop-off. So Condon himself forced Cemetery John to a nearby bench where he convinced him to provide evidence that Charlie was still alive. Cemetery John agreed, and the following Wednesday, Condon received what was allegedly a pair of Charlie's pajamas in the mail. As you might have guessed, included with the pajamas was yet another letter from the kidnapper. It stated that if Lindbergh accepted the pajamas as proof that Charlie was alive, Condon was to post a personal ad in the New York American, accepting the terms of the ransom, and a time for the exchange would be provided. On April 2nd, 1932, a messenger delivered a note to Condon's home. It advised him to drive to a florist located at 3,225 East Tremont Avenue in the Bronx. Joined by Lindbergh himself, Condon travelled to the location detailed in the letter and found additional instructions under a rock on a display table. The exchange was to take place at St. Raymond Cemetery. Lindbergh remained in the car while Condon made the exchange. Condon was able to negotiate the ransom back to the original amount of $50,000. He handed over the money and was given a written letter detailing Charlie's location. It read, quote, 
The boy is on the bowed Nelly. It is a small bowed, 28 feet long. Two persons are on the bowed. They are innocent. You will find the bowed between Horseneck Beach and Gayhead near Elizabeth Island. End quote. Lindbergh flew to Gayhead immediately in search for his little boy. When he arrived, there was no sign of a boat named Nellie, Charlie, or the kidnappers. On May 12, 1932, 72 days after he first went missing, Charlie Lindbergh was found. Friends Orville Wilson and William Allen were taking a road trip to Mount Rose in New Jersey. They were approximately four and a half miles from the Lindbergh family residence when they decided to pull over on the side of the highway for a bathroom break. William Allen walked approximately 45 feet away from the highway when he made the startling discovery. Partially obstructed by the brush was the decomposing body of Charlie Lindbergh. The medical examiner, Dr. Charles H. Mitchell, concluded that Charlie more than likely died the night he was taken as a result of head trauma. Lindbergh and Marrow had Charlie cremated almost immediately and his ashes were scattered over the Atlantic Ocean. A $25,000 reward was offered by the New Jersey State Police for the arrest of the murderer. Thousands and thousands of tips were received, but sadly, none of them led to the murderer's apprehension. As time passed, investigators began to believe the kidnapping may have been an inside job. A maid named Violet Sharp, who worked for the Lindberghs, gave a conflicting report when Charlie was first kidnapped. Police had planned to question her again, but before they were able to, she took her own life. Whatever information she may have been able to provide died with her. With all leads exhausted and little in the way of forensic evidence, investigators began to look further into the ransom notes received. Thirteen were received in total, all of which contained similar grammatical errors. Several handwriting experts all agreed that the same individual was responsible for writing them and that the author was more than likely of German origin. Two years came and went, and investigators were no closer to an arrest. Then, on August 20th, 1934, reports of the gold certificates linked to the Lindbergh ransom began trickling in. According to the website medium.com, quote, On September 18th, 1934, a banker in New York City called the FBI to report receiving a gold note different from the others. This bill had New York license plate number 4U-13-41-1 dash NY written in the margin. A gas station attendant received the bill and thought the customer might have been a counterfeiter and jotted down the number. End quote. 
trace of the number plate led investigators to an apartment in the Bronx. 1279 East 222 2nd Street was the home of Bruno Richard Huftman. Huftman was a carpenter by trade and had immigrated from, you guessed it, Germany. At 9 a.m. on September 18, 1934, Huptman was arrested. According to Medium.com, quote, Dr. Coden described Cemetery John to a sketch artist. He was about 5'9", weighed about 165 pounds, with an athletic build and a fair complexion, end quote. Not only did Huptman match eyewitness accounts of Cemetery John, he also had a $20 gold certificate on him that was later linked to the ransom money. In addition, investigators found over $13,000 worth of gold certificates from the ransom money stuffed into a tin can hidden in Huptman's garage. Huptman admitted spending the money, but denied involvement in the crime itself. He alleged that his acquaintance, Isidore Fitch, asked him to look after the money while he visited his home country of Germany. Huptman alleges that he received word from Fisch's brother in Germany that Fisch had passed away on March 22, 1934, and subsequently he began spending the gold certificates. Handwriting samples were taken from Huptman but proved inconclusive by analysis expert Albert Osborne. The evidence was circumstantial at best. On September 26, 1934, Huptman was charged for extortion in the state of New York, and October 8, he was charged for the murder of Charlie Lindbergh in the state of New Jersey. Remember that broken letter that was left at the crime scene by the abductor? Well, here is where it comes into play. During Huptman's trial in Flemington, New Jersey in 1935, the prosecution entered into evidence rail number 16. After an extensive search of Huptman's home, it was discovered that the wood used to floor Huptman's attic was an exact match for the wood used to assemble the makeshift ladder. The intricate pattern of the grain matched line for line. To make matters even worse, Huptman's alibis fell apart when it was discovered that the defense had paid some of them for their testimony. On February 13, 1935, the jury found Huptman guilty. The judge presiding over the case sentenced him to death by electrocution. During an interview, a reporter asked Huptman if he was frightened of death, to which he replied, quote, You can imagine how I feel when I think of my wife and child, but I have no fear for myself because I know that I am innocent. If I have to go to the chair in the end, I will go like a man and like an innocent man. After his execution on April 3, 1936, Hauptmann's widow maintained his innocence for the rest of her life. 
The Lindberghs would go on to have another five children after Charlie's tragic death. In fact, before Charlie was found, Mara was actually pregnant with her second child at the time. Charles Lindbergh went on to have quite a controversial career after his son's death. During and after Charlie's short-lived life, Lindbergh began work on the invention of an artificial heart pump. His invention, if successful, would save thousands suffering from congenitive heart failure. Between the years of 1931 and 1935, he worked alongside French surgeon Alexis Carroll, developing his invention. Carroll was the winner of the Nobel Prize and was known for his experimentation on organs. You see, Carroll wanted to see if he could develop a way in which organs could continue to live outside of the human body. Make of that what you will. Carol and Lindbergh were both eugenics enthusiasts and would spend the rest of their lives striving towards their ultimate goal of perfection in humanity. If you're unfamiliar with the term eugenics and what it encompasses, History.com offers the following explanation. Quote, Eugenics is the practice or advocacy of improving the human species by selectively mating people with specific desirable hereditary traits. It aims to reduce human suffering by breeding out diseases, disabilities, and so-called undesirable characteristics from the human population. Early supporters of eugenics believe that people inherited mental illness, criminal tendencies, and even poverty and that these conditions could be bred out of the gene pool. Historically, eugenics encouraged people of so-called healthy, superior stock to reproduce and discourage reproduction of the mentally challenged or anyone who fell out of the social norm. Eugenics was popular in America during the first half of the 20th century, yet it earned its negative association mainly from Adolf Hitler's obsessive attempts to create a superior race." End quote. Yes, you heard right, Adolf Hitler. With Lindbergh's much sought-after blonde hair, blue eyes, and quote-unquote perfect dimples, Carol believed that he had found the perfect specimen for experimentation with eugenics. According to popular podcast, My Favorite Murder, Carol encouraged Lindbergh to procreate in order to keep his quote-unquote superior lineage from dying out. Lindbergh went on to secretly father seven children with multiple women while still married to Marrow. His affair with Bridget Hessheimer brought Dirk, Astrid, and David into the world. His affair with Marietta Hassheimer, that's right, Bridget's very own sister, birthed Vago and Christoph. Lindbergh had a third affair with a woman known only as Valeska. We do know that she was his private secretary and also his German translator. She later gave birth to a son and daughter whose names have not been released to the public. 
Lindbergh's affair with the two sisters only ended when he passed away. To make matters worse, his children were told their father's name was Karu Kent, a lie invented by Lindbergh to protect his upstanding public image. Lindbergh passed away on August 26, 1974, from cancer. At the time of his death, he and Marrow, yep, she stayed with him, were living in seclusion on the Hawaiian island of Maui. In 2004, eight decades after baby Charlie was found murdered, Lloyd C. Gardner, a professor of history, published the book, The Case That Never Dies, The Lindbergh Kidnapping. Published by Rutgers University Press, Gardner delves into Lindbergh's obsession with eugenics and how it may have led to what was once known as the crime of the century. In his book, Gardner argues that Charlie was suffering from a multitude of health problems in addition to the cold he was recovering from at the time of his kidnapping. According to the website rutgers.edu, quote, Although the child's health and physical condition at the time of his abduction were downplayed, even hidden from a curious public and law enforcement by Lindbergh and the boy's doctor, he appears to have been afflicted with a rickets-like condition that affected the development of strong bones. He required mega doses of vitamin D and daily exposure to a sun lamp kept cribside. He also had hammer toes on his left foot and a too large cranium and unfused skull bones. End quote. The idea of the public knowing of his hypothetically less than perfect child may have been too much for Lindbergh to bear. It is thought that he arranged the kidnapping as a cover for sending Charlie to a hospital where he could receive proper treatment for his conditions away from the public eye. If this theory is correct, we know that things did not go quite to plan. Despite the 13 ransom letters that alluded to the fact that Charlie was alive, we've come to learn that Charlie died the night he was taken. The most likely of situations was that Charlie was accidentally dropped when he was removed from his nursery. The makeshift ladder would not have been easy to climb, and as we know, rail number 16 was broken. Could it have broken under the weight of a kidnapper as he held Charlie in his arms? The theory seems to suggest that fearing the repercussions of the accidental death and spoiling Lindbergh's master plan, the kidnapper, whomever they were, continued sending the ransom notes to give the illusion the baby was still alive. Lindbergh took personal charge of the investigation very early on in the piece isolating household staff from being questioned by authorities. Could he have been informed of Charlie's accidental death and been trying to cover his tracks in the process? We will never know. As a result of Charlie's premature death, the Lindbergh Act of 1932 was established. The law makes it a federal crime 
to transport a kidnapped victim across state lines. It allows federal agents to pursue kidnappers across state borders where local law enforcement is bound by jurisdiction. As he continued to speak out in support of Hitler during World War II, Charles Lindbergh slowly started to fall from grace. As eloquently stated on the website medium.com of Charles Lindbergh, quote, Americans have since learned to have better heroes, end quote. Thank you for joining me for another episode of One Weird Chick. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and until next time, stay spooky. This episode of One Word Chick was written, produced, and edited by Jessica Fernando. Today's story was edited by Toby Sagona. One Word Chick's opening theme was created by Brielle Johnson, and logo was designed by Lauren Adams. Follow One Word Chick on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn for more.